Good morning, everybody. Welcome to The Surge. Uh, my name is E. Reese. I am an assistant guy here at The Surge. It's so good to see you here today. Uh, we are continuing our Living in Babylon series today. We're in Daniel chapter 5, which is the passage on the writing on the wall. So I thought a little graffiti might be just the ticket. <laughs> so uh, let's start here. Uh, I, I probably told, the, told you this before, but I am really not a history buff. I'm not a history guy. Um, I, I, I do think that those who do not study history will be the people that are doomed to live more interesting and productive lives. <laughs> it's kind of not, just kidding. Uh, I just, I just, history is not my thing. It's not something that I've studied. I've gotten a little bit around the edges with literature and some of the other things that I've done, but it's not my thing. However, this message drove me to a little bit of history that was actually fascinating. And it starts here. The Medes and the Persians are coming. The Medes and the Persians are coming. Now in about 530 BC, the Medes and the Persians really came into their own. They took over Asia. <laughs> they swept into the Middle East. They rolled into what we would call now Afghanistan and Turkey. And now their attention is turning to the South and the West. And the only thing standing in their way to being the world power, the world dominating power is Babylon. The same Babylon that Daniel is in, the same Babylon that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in, that the Jews have been taken into captivity with Nebuchadnezzar, and the, the chapters that Duane has led us through the last few weeks. They've actually rolled into the area. They are outside the city. And this is the thing where if you pitch it as a movie, no one would buy it because it's just not believable. So there are literally hundreds of thousands of Medes and Persians outside the city trying to figure out how to take it down have a bunch of engineers <laughs> who are a scary lot. They, they find a bunch of shovels. They exchange swords for shovels and they start to dig. Let's leave that there for now. We'll come back to it. <laughs> Across the Euphrates River, which butted up against the walls of Babylon, we go into the city itself, into the mighty Babylon, and inside the city is a buzz. And why are they buzzing? Is it because there's an army outside the gates? No, not at all. They're throwing a party. They are completely unconcerned about the Medes and the Persians that are coming with pitchforks and torches and fire and shovels to take them out. Um, they're throwing a party. The gates open, everyone crowds in. They want to get a glimpse of the gardens that they've heard about, the hanging gardens of Babylon, the manicured trees and shrubs, the exotic animals, the jugglers, the entertainers, probably a harpist or two if they were lucky. But there were, there were places where only kings and queens could walk. You don't want to wait too long because you want to get a good seat, right? You want to make it to the party. The drinks come out, <laughs> the good stuff, the, uh, the alcohol starts flowing, the excitement picks up, sobriety starts to fade, people start to loosen up and all kinds of fun and, dare I say, weirdness starts to occur. So those up front hear the command and uh, they're like, huh. The king has stood up and he makes a call. These first four verses in Daniel chapter five are really interesting. It's just a messed up story. Uh, so let's start with uh, verse one. So it says this, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Uh, just as a side note, before we get too far into this, this is one of the things that captured me about, about this passage. Uh, it's a fun fact. Every single time that there's a historical tidbit in scripture that doesn't seem to match up with what we know about history, over time, the Bible's proven right. Every time. And so the first thing that we notice here is King Belshazzar. Well, wait a minute. Who's King, who's King Belshazzar? Weren't we King Nebuchadnezzar? What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, we've had 65 years since Daniel and his friends were taken from Jerusalem into Babylon. Some time has passed. 
and that Nebuchadnezzar's gone his way and their other rulers have risen up in his place. So we're, we're almost a generation down the road. But for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, history believed that the last king of Babylon was a guy named Nabonidus. Nabonidus. Everybody knows that he was the last king. No mention of Belshazzar at all, none. And so for hundreds of years, this was used as a criticism of both Christianity and the Bible. This Belshazzar is somebody that somebody, they made him up. He didn't have to exist. Nabonidus was the last king. There was no Belshazzar. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> Until the last century, when they found Nabonidus chronicles in uh, an archaeological dig, they unearthed them just south of Babylon. And in those, the last king of Babylon tells of his last years. He talks about the temples he built. He talks about the cities he fortified. He talks about his retirement in Arabia when he left his kingdom to his oldest son named Belshazzar. <laughs> and so, once again, the Bible is proven right. It, it's kind of cool. The Bible is true, and the truth will stand up to scrutiny. And this has happened not one time, but more than 2,000 times. So the Nabonidus Cylinder is right now sitting in the British Museum of History. And for hundreds of years, the criticism that the Bible was false and untrue is actually has a big eraser over that part of it, right? In 539 BC, the oldest son, Belshazzar, took over as reigning king of Babylon. It's one of the reasons I really love the Bible. Move on to verse two. So Belshazzar, who actually existed, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem he brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. They brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now you can see that phrase a lot, that Nebuchadnezzar is his father. Understand that, that it's not his literal father. His literal father was Nabonidus. It's a lot like referencing our founding fathers of the U.S. or saying that the Jews who talk about their forefathers who dug this well, it's that kind of thing. But we see that Belshazzar is throwing a party, but it's not just any party. <laughs> Remember, there's an enemy camped outside the gates. It's a particularly arrogant party. <laughs> it's a party showing that he is not concerned, he's unafraid, you can't touch me. And to be fair, he has a point. Walls are 100 feet thick. They're massively high, there are guards and gates, he's totally fortified. No one's getting in that he doesn't want in, so he throws a party. But the way he does that is in a way that mocks God. He takes the things that were consecrated for use by the priests, for use in worship, and he brings that into a drunken, debauched <laughs> setting and is actually making mock of God. What he's saying is, we took down the, the Jews, we took down their God, we'll take down the Medes and the Persians, it's no problem. But then something happens and things start to change. In Daniel 5, verse 5, it says this. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him and his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Freaked him out. So why the third ruler in the kingdom? The Nabonidus Chronicles tell us that Nabonidus was still the emperor, he was still the main guy. Belshazzar was number two. So the highest position that he could offer outside of himself was 
the third place of position and power. Look at verses eight and nine. All the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing. They could not make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed again, and his lords were perplexed. And the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, she came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams and explain riddles, solve problems, were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. And just a side note. This is not a new thing. Women can find things. In our house, <laughs> I have a vague sense that we own scissors and they're somewhere. They might be downstairs. I'm not sure. But Karen, Karen, can you help me find the scissors? Is there any women who can identify with this? It can be, it can, my hand can actually be touching the object. I can't find it unless there's a female to help me uh, to get to where that is. If there's a particular pot or a document, you can ask me about that. I can verify that it exists, but Karen is the one who can actually get it for you. Um, but here's what we need to know. Women are very wise. In times of crisis, you should listen to them, right? right? It's, it's, it's a good thing to do. They have a great perspective. You should listen to what they have to say because it might save your kingdom if you listen. Okay, anybody? Anybody out there? They good? Okay. All right, going on with the story. Daniel 5, verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah, and I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you that light and understanding or excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they cannot show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give the interpretation and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around your neck. You shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And boy, can you smell the delicious irony. <laughs> Belteshazzar picks up the goblets of gold from the temple. He's mocking God. He's conquered God. But guess what? Now he needs him, right? And so his tune starts to change. He's forced to call on the very God he's mocked. And this is where it gets good. I'm not sure I have the slides in for this one, but let me read it to you. Continuing on in Daniel 5. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Keep your stuff. Let your rewards go to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and I will make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of the heaven, until he knew the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and set over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart Though you knew all of this, 
but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, they don't hear, they don't know, but the God in whom hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. And Daniel, in this moment, and in many moments, steps into the role of a prophet. Speaking truth to power, right? And the role of the prophet is this. It's very simple. They speak the, the, the picture of God's working, past, present, and future, right? And Daniel reminds him, look, this is a lesson that God has taught Babylon before. Did you not get Nebuchadnezzar's memo? Did you not read chapter four? What are you doing? And he, and he brings it into the present and says, listen, the God that you are mocking is the one that holds your breath in his hands. You've got to cut it out. Well, think about what you're doing. Think about where you are right now. And it's, and, and it's not ironic. It's ironic that right outside the gates are the Medes and the Persians clamoring <laughs> to have his head. Ah. Moving on. And this is the writing that was inscribed. This is what the hand wrote on the wall. Many, many, tekel and parson. And Daniel speaking, saying, this is the interpretation of the manner. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel's rolling his eyes at this <laughs> because he just, he just said, listen, you're going down in flames. The, the people bringing the flames are right outside the gate. And so, okay, so your company is going down. You're, I mean, you're done. You're a bankrupt. You're, you're kaput. Great, you're now an executive vice president of the company. And Daniel's going, oh, thanks a lot. You know, I really appreciate that. Great, that's good for me. Because in verse 30, it says this, that very night, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let's go back to the engineers with the shovels. <laughs> At this time in history, a walled city was a thing. It, there was no technology or apparatus to get into a walled city very well. It's why Jericho was an issue. It's why Babylon was an issue. And in Babylon, it was a particular issue because the Euphrates River was a thing. The walls were literally 100 feet thick. And this was 539 BC. Catapults didn't come around until the 400s. The Chinese didn't start using trebuchets until about that time. So we are 100, 150 years from, no kidding, siegecraft to chuck rocks and flames and stuff at walls to bring them down. I mean, what did you do? What did you do? It's basically an unsolvable problem. The tech of warfare had not yet been built to take down a wall. And there was no plausible way that they could get it done. But you know what? Give engineers an unsolvable problem, <laughs> smart guys with a shovel and some tools, it's kind of amazing what they can cook up. Uh, the Greek historian Herodotus wrote this. Hereupon the Persians who had been left for the purpose of Babylon by the riverside entered the stream called the Great Euphrates, which had now sunk so low as to reach about midway up a man's thigh, and thus they got into the town. And he goes on to describe how they literally diverted the river. 
<laughs> they dug a bunch of stuff. They, they bottomed the riverbed. They diverted the river, which lowered it, which allowed them to go underneath the wall. They just literally walked into the city by diverting the, the river that no one would have thought about. So Darius, Cyrus the Great, punched a hole in the riverbed. They let the water go out. It flooded the lower valley. And the greatest barrier and giant river became a nice little stream. And they walked in and literally took the city in a night. So here are three things that I want to pull from this chapter. First one is this. It's going to sound, it's going to sound so simple when you say it out loud, but I think it's something that's it's a good reminder from five that we need to hear. There is danger outside the walls. Pay attention, <laughs> right? right? Does that make sense? There is danger outside the walls. There are times when life is hard. And guess what? We have an enemy. We all live with danger outside of our gates. First Peter 5 puts it this way. Be self-controlled, be alert, be on guard. Why? For your adversary, your enemy, the devil, sneaks around like a roaring lion, like a mead and a Persian, like an engineer with a shovel, looking for someone to devour. People, simply because you are made in the image of God, Satan hates you. He hates you with the passion of a thousand sons. He wants to destroy you because that is the only way that he can actually hurt God himself. He wants to take you down. If you call yourself a Christian, you have a target on your back. Be alert. There is danger outside the walls. It's real. And listen, we can talk about sexuality. We can talk about chemical dependency. We can talk about anger and abuse. We can talk about greed. We can talk about violence. We can talk about all of the silliness that we see going on on the news in our cities with the shootings and the stuff. Just look at our culture. Look at what's happening in our cities in America. There is danger, real danger, outside the walls. We need to pay attention. The harder thing is this, <laughs> as if that's not hard enough. Don't forget the actual danger that was being faced in this passage, right? They weren't th thinking about the Medes and the Persians. Why? Because they were laser focused on what? Entertainment. Are we guilty of that in America? We're, we're ignoring the dark army that is coming to destroy our cities and our community because we're focused on video games and movies and the fun stuff that we get to do and vacations and this and that. And none of those things are bad. None of those things are evil but they can be a distraction, right? And when we forget about the thing, the darkness that's looming and throw a party, we're not where we need to be. We have an enemy at the gate, a real enemy. Don't ignore it. Second thing is this. <laughs> there is danger inside the walls. Here's the thing that captured me in studying this, this passage this week. We, we simply must not live our lives in a way that mocks God. We simply mustn't do it. To take the resources that for whatever reason have come into our power, into our control, into our stewardship, and waste them on silly consumption, on the party, on entertainment, on drunkenness, it's something we should be very careful about. And the message, <laughs> there's no way out of this. The me this is what just got me in, in looking at this this week. The message that was written on the wall to Belteshazzar, it's easy for us to point and go, yeah, ha, that, that proud evil king, that guy that's just a moron that doesn't get it. He's throwing a party, there's an army outside, what's wrong with you? That message that's written to him, it's also written to us. It's also written to us. Mene, mene, our days are numbered. We're not gonna live forever. <laughs> Our days are numbered. We have life. We have breath. 
We have time, but it's a stewardship and it's temporary and it's not going to last forever, right? You might live to be 108 years old, but guess what? You'll make the news and then you're going to die and the number of your days is going to come to an end. And on our own, when we're made, we're weighed and we're measured, we're found wanting. Even on our best day, we are not worthy of the holiness and the righteousness to stand before God with a clear conscience. Even our best actions, even our very best motives are a little bit tainted. They're not pure. We can't stand before God on our own. Our motives are suspect. Our words are sometimes cruel. Our hearts are filled with selfishness and petty focus. And our stuff, (laughs) it's a lot of stuff. We might have a walled city. We might have resources. We might have things. Guess what? Your days are numbered, you're gonna die, your stuff's gonna get divided up and given to somebody else, right? Might be your family, might be the government, might be divided up, but it's gonna be divided up and it's gonna be given to someone else, right? It gets passed on to the next generation, to the Medes and the Persians, whoever they are, when you die. The writing on the wall isn't just for Belshazzar, existent though he is, it's for us. It's a reminder that on our own, we're not safe that our judgment is terrible, that we have a tendency to party when we should be paying attention to the army, right? And that our legacy, our legacy can get wiped out in a moment. In a moment. That our success, grand though it is, is temporary. It's temporary. And it leads us to the third thing. We have a choice to make. When Daniel stands before us, when, when God stands before us in the person of Jesus Christ, when the gospel stands before us, it leads us to a point of decision. And that choice is to allow the gospel to pour into our lives and change the script and change the game or not. Or not. Listen, our days here on earth are numbered. But because of what Jesus has done, the period that's on the end of the line at the date on your tombstone, it's not the end of your story. It's not the last word. Your story, the good story that God wrote for you, designed especially for you before the beginning of the world, is meant to go on. It's meant to continue. And yeah, our judgment day is coming. But here's the thing. You want to face that alone. You don't have to. Jesus has made a way. He he has paid the price. Do you want God's own finger on the scales when you're weighed and measured? I do, right? I I want Jesus to be my advocate. He's done everything. He's rigged the game in your favor. All you have to do is believe it and accept it. It's a very good thing. The gospel is good news. We just have to accept it. We have to step into it. And our stuff, the stuff that, that distracts us, that controls us, that is like strings that sucks up our time, Without an eternal perspective, that gets really depressing. You work hard your whole life, and guess what? Then you die, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> Yay, that's such a, good, such a good plan. Why should we dedicate everything to that? When we understand that stuff, stuff, it's temporary, right? We hold it as stewards for a period of time, and then it goes on to the next generation. It makes it really easy to be open-handed, <laughs> right? It makes it really easy to be free with your stuff, When you understand that it's God's, he gave it to you, he can take it away, it's gonna get taken away when you die anyway, what are you hanging on to it for? Be generous. Be generous to your children. Be generous to the next generation. Use your stuff to invest in (laughs) the thing that's coming next. Go where God would want you to go. It makes it easy for us to be generous. 
And the truth of the gospel, it sets us free from the tyranny of greed, the tyranny of acquisition, from the tight grip of ambition and worldly accomplishment. It sets us free to focus on the little things, like spending time with our friends, with our children, investing in the people that are coming next, of living a life most pleasing to God. Listen, there's danger outside the walls. Pay attention. There's danger inside the walls. Guard your hearts. And these dangers drive us to a decision. But it's the divine opportunity of the gospel that can shine out in our lives in a way that is profound and deeply satisfying. Deeply satisfying. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for this day that you've given us and for the the wonderful words of your grace. Thank you for the reminder of this story. Thank you for the reminder of the dangers that are real. Thank you for the reminder of the remedy that you provide. And Lord, I pray that you would speak and sing over us, that your amazing love would just shine into us and out of us, that you would lead us to where you want us to go. And we thank you for everything that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.